everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a big and rather varied show for you today, so let's get right to it. Later on, we'll meet Jennifer Dodge. She's the producer of the upcoming Paw Patrol, the movie. Now, if you have kids, you already know all about this movie, and I suspect you already know what you'll be watching this weekend. We'll also meet author and journalist Omar Alaked. His novel, American War, was an international bestseller, was translated into 13 languages, and he stopped by a few years ago to this show to talk about that book. Well, he returns to the bestseller charts and to this show with What Strange Paradise, a new book that looks at the global refugee crisis through the eyes of a child. First up, though, let's get to know Jenna Malone. She is a Golden Globe-nominated actress, best known for her roles in the Hunger Games franchise and Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice. She returns to theaters and VOD in the critically acclaimed film Lorelei, the gritty story of a man released from prison after 15 years who reunites with his high school girlfriend who is now a single mother of three. It's been called a moving character study, and it contains some of Jenna Malone's best work. She joined me via Zoom. Here's Jenna Malone. We are going to move to L.A. After I finish high school, we are going to watch the sun go down on Sunset Boulevard. Not go to sleep until, until it, it came, came up, up in the morning. morning. And now I'm a maid with three kids, and you're an out-of-work felon. Congratulations on Lorelai. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really proud of this film. I'm really proud of Sabrina Doyle's work as a writer, director. It's so it's so easy these days to just um, show the grit of poverty mm -hmm. and not the hope um, and not the sort of sheer will to survive despite um, the, the hardest of circumstances. So it feels really um, the type of healing that we as audience members need right now. You know, it feels important. Well, I, as I was watching it, I kept thinking about that. There's an old saying that says, you fall down six times, you get up seven times. Right. And what, <laughs> yeah. And what I felt while I was watching this is I wasn't watching people who were on their uh, second chance. I was watching people that were on their sixth and seventh chances. Right. Yeah. Like and, their 30th chance. Yeah. And, it was gonna be and, a and still had hope for the future though. And that to me was um, uh, unexpected. I think in a movie where you you hear what it's about and you think, oh, I kind of figure I know how this is going to go, and then totally. it doesn't, and it's and it's quite wonderful. So tell me a little bit about the when you first saw the script. Um, was that it? Was that the thing that drew you in, or was it the character of Dolores or Lola, as I call her in the movie? I mean, what, you can't what was take it? The character out of a script, you know, particularly as an actor when you're reading it, um, but. Yeah, it was uh, it was a powerful, sweet, and beautiful. I mean, everything that you're witnessing on the um, screen is what was on the page. Right. And then getting to meet with Sabrina and just she's just so uh, she has she had such a beautiful vision, you know, and really wanted it to be deeply authentic, but still moving and uplifting and not. Um, you know, like a trauma porn, you know, mm -hmm. where we're just like, this is investigative and it has to get deep. And it's like, these people are sort of, you know, their backs against the wall and let's see how much, you know, it, we can just dump on them. Um, but really it was, a, 
it was a mixture of that. And it was sort of a fable, you know, which is nice to kind of allow this like poverty line fable to feel oddly rejuvenative. It's just not a space that we get to witness, particularly on the news cycles and in a lot of contemporary storytelling, to be fair. Um, that sort of, you know, lower middle class has always been the place of like deep, almost investigative journal, you know, journalistic, like it's very real and gritty and, and harsh and it's important, like, amen, because there's a lot of that in that world, but it's nice um, to allow it to be um, a more universal story. Well, I don't think that there's any such thing as a monolith in any realm of the world, right? You you cannot look at one story of poverty or whatever it might be and go, well, that's what it's like for everybody. And it's true, but it, um, uh, there, there can be monolithic thinking that sort of emerges from um, a filmmaker's tongue, right? And so the filmmaker can sort of add elements of whatever, you know, where it's like dichotomy or complete linear thinking. So it's, it's just, a, it's refreshing to have it not be that, you know? So let's talk about uh, Dolores and how you found out uh, who she was so that you were able to play her. I've been reading about you and you say to to research the character, to think about the character, that you looked at your own moms who raised me in an untraditional way. They worked three jobs and I don't remember them ever cooking us dinner. And <laughs> I, mean, I remember certain dinners. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's more like my siblings and I all cooked, you know, like I just remember that much more. Um, mm. And it's not even to their uh, disservice, mm -hmm. those kind of recollections, because I felt like in a way I was given the gift of being raised very free without a lot of helicopter parenting right. and right. Um, which gave me kind of like a really, I think, sweet compass in the sense of like, I'm very reliable, self-dependent, you know, know, you know, how to make things work for myself. And um, so in a way, I feel like I, it was an honor to be raised in such a circumstance. You're listening to my interview with Jenna Malone, star of Lorelei, now on VOD. I often joke that I was raised by wolves. My parents worked, <laughs> they weren't around, so I had to figure out how to cook, how to do yeah, all that very stuff. Yeah, feral, it has, but and I, it, it, I think and, it's and, one and, way to do it. I mean, it's sort it of like done previously, you know, <laughs> except that it was feral in community, which I think is the best way, really. That's right. I wrote you. I wanted to write you back. I got pregnant. I have three total. Been busy. Yep. So tell me a little bit about working with uh, Pablo Schreiber. He's so good in this because what, what I sense from him is a, a, a man who is fighting against his worst nature and mm -hmm. looking forward with hope. But it's easy to fall back into a life. He was in prison for 15 years for armed robbery. His motorcycle pals are waiting for him when he gets out. And yet he, he tries and tries so hard to walk away from that and to do to to better his life so tell me about creating the dynamic between the two of you as actors and as characters yeah i mean pablo did such an incredible job of like all you know and it's it's so timely in the sense of really examining one's um indoctrinated masculinity you know that one day you sort of wake up and realize is it serving me you know or am i serving it and I just think that the, you know, the shape that he took for the character, gaining weight, being this like imposing, you know, kind of threatening white mm -hmm. male figure that is actually in need of softness and not the kind that other people start taking care of him, is that rather he gets to be put in the position of caregiver. And it's just such a beautiful 
I mean, you know, full circle for most of that masculine that instead of, you know, wanting to be tended, um, starts tending to, and Mm -hmm. it, it felt really spectacular he breaks my heart every time i see it i I think he did such an incredible job i don't even know how to do this anymore they're not even my they're not your kids but they should have been so it wasn't supposed to be like this i mean i think the calibration between the two characters is really all in the script but um you know i we really we really got along like it was really i think we respected each other as actors and he's just so good and he, you know it, we felt very safe to um explore and go anywhere together and um i liked what he was doing so it made me want to do more and you know i think we were both kind of happy to be alive together in that and not just phoning it in or doing something obvious. And so, yeah, there was like a canvas to paint something that felt really unique. You know I ain't your real dad, right? Me living with you, tying your shoes, playing I Spy games, none of that makes me your dad. What then? What? What makes you my dad? I often think of films as uh, being little machines for empathy. You know, when we tell stories uh, that uh, illuminate parts of life that maybe we don't know about or uh, tell us things about other people that we may have ignored uh, will, you know, willfully or, or not. Uh, yeah. But they, they, they create empathy within it. And I thought that Lorelai did such a great job of uh, creating empathy for these characters who are sometimes you would imagine on the sidelines of society a little bit. But, you know, I defy anybody to watch the scene where you're, playing karaoke with your daughters in the in the living room and not feel uh, a, just a burst of empathy for that character and and see her trying to be such a great mom and see how things are going with the kids uh i i was really moved and, and taken by that oh, particular so scene much. that's really sweet thank you for noticing that yeah because you'd think that the traditional avenue of empathy would be make them likable right mm-hmm. but really what i find um that scene feels like such a nice exhale is because you're given so many examples of the disaster of motherhood you know the sort of like the clumsy the missteps the faults the anger the not quite enough like still learning that lesson and um because I think Sabrina was very uh, interested in wanting to show that and I was like yes because I'm a mother and I you know and I also all of us have parents we know what that world is like. Um, I think that actually the, the best way towards empathy is to really just show more of the full, the fuller part of just being human, you know? There's those really like joyful karaoke scenes right next to when you're like yelling at your kids and there's, um, you're just trying to find your rhythms together, you know? That was Jenna Malone talking about her new film, Lorelei. You'll find it on VOD. She's co-stars opposite Pablo Schreiber. You probably remember him from Orange is the New Black and lots of other stuff. It's a fantastic look at this couple who are just struggling, trying to keep their heads above water despite life throwing some curveballs at them. And it has an ending, frankly, you don't see coming. And that's one of the things I really loved about it. Omar Alakad is an author. He joined me a few years ago now to talk about his book, American War. Uh, He's out with a new book called What Strange Paradise. It's a gripping book that looks at the global refugee crisis through the eyes of a child. And the reviews are in. What an imaginative, touching, and necessary novel Omar Alakad has brought us, said one reviewer. 
Another says, it's one thing to put a human face on a migrant crisis and another to do so in so compelling a way that a reader simply cannot put the book down. Omar is an author and he's a journalist. He has reported from Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay, and many other locations around the world. His work earned Canada's National Newspaper Award for Investigative Journalism and the Goth Penny Award for Young Journalists. He's a really interesting writer and an even more interesting interview. I don't know if that's possible, but he's a very interesting interview. Here's my conversation with Omar Alake about his book, What Strange Paradise, available now wherever you buy fine books. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You have alternating chapters uh, between uh, the Amir story, the the nine-year-old boy who is washed up on the shore of an island and adopted by uh, a a young woman, Vanna. And then every other chapter is their life together. And as I was reading this, I was wondering if you wrote all of Amir's story and then wrote the story of the two of them together and kind of put them together? Or do you alternate as you're writing? I moved um, back and forth. Um, There were earlier versions of of the manuscript where those two two threads uh, intertwined. Mm -hmm. So, So it was a process of deconstruction after the fact. Uh, when I came to the conclusion that those two threads uh, would work better if they if they alternated, um, but one of the interesting things about this novel is that when I finished, I think the third or fourth draft, and finally decided to show it to somebody, um, there were four early readers, mm. and all four of them came back with entirely different interpretations of what had happened in this novel, which is not what I expected. Right. Um, because as you say, it's, it's, it's a more simply constructed um, uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. The things that are complex about it are very much under the surface. It's, um, it's a very different book depending on how familiar you are with the two works in the epigraph. Mm-hmm. If you've read An Occurrence at Owl Creek or the original Peter Pan, this is a very different novel. Right. Um, but I got wildly different interpretations of what was happening and that was surreal to me. And how do you respond to that as a writer? Earlier in my career, it, it was the cause of some frustration. I, um, with American War, my first novel, I thought that it was pretty clear what I was trying to do. And then the book comes out four months into the Trump administration, and suddenly it's read in a way that is entirely different from what I intended. The older I get, the more gratifying I find these different readings. Um, I think it means that the work has a life of its own. And ultimately, if you're going to spend years of your life on something, you want it to have those many lives. You don't want it to be more prescriptive than that. So I was, I was quite gratified by it, even if deeply confused by some of these interpretations. Well, I interviewed Spike Lee once and told him my interpretation of a scene in one of his films. And I think the question was, you know, is that what you had in mind? And he said, not at all. Not even, didn't even cross my mind, but he said, I love it because that's the subjectivity of art. You know, we can all bring something to it. And, uh, you know, as a writer, when you create something, once it's out there, it's out there. You have no control over it anymore. 
And the idea that people will interpret it and see it as they do um, is just part of the process, I guess. And, you know, your first book uh, was a dystopian, uh, a much more dystopian novel. And, you know, a year or two into the Trump administration probably seemed a lot more timely and uh, possible than it might have when you were writing the book. Yeah, I mean, it's taken on this strange series of second lives um, with the derangement of the Republican Party and with Mm. the sort of constant drip of scandals and outrages in this country. Um, It has taken on this strange existence. Um, You know, it never sold like Harry Potter copies or anything like that. I don't want to give the impression that it was some kind of massive blockbuster. Yeah, yeah but it just keeps chugging along. It refuses to die because reality keeps hitting it over the head with, with reference points. You're listening to my interview with Omar Alaked. Find his book, What Strange Paradise, wherever you buy fine books. Well, you live in the United States. Uh, and you know when you look out the window, what are you seeing there? Because you know from where I sit, uh, we get news reports and, and I haven't been to the US in a year and a half now because of the pandemic. Uh, but it seems in the last year uh, that the, the the temperature has changed there. Things are different than they were even a year before that. Yeah, I mean, what I see, for lack of a better phrase, is I think the final privilege of empire, mm. which is the privilege of setting aside reality. Um, you know, for some people, I think the great shock of, of the Trump era was that there were so many people willing to go for this. Mm-hmm willing to believe this man and what and what he represented. But you're seeing a version of that now where, for example, we have one of the, the true sort of miracles of modern science. We have a vaccine to a deadly disease that came about in record time and is something like 90 some percent effective. Mm-hmm. And roughly half the country won't take it because there is a con- conception of reality that has nothing to do with reality And yet one of the privileges of living in this country right now is that it can supersede reality. Mm. Whatever it is you believe it to be is now more important than what it is, which which to me is is the scariest thing at the heart of all of this stuff. Everything else, everything going on in the Republican Party, all the rest of it are symptoms, I think, of that fundamental disease of just allowing the fantasy to supersede reality. Well, as someone who made a living as a journalist for many years, you must look at that and and uh, mourn the profession to a certain extent when opinion has become fact, when became, uh, often opinion now is more accepted than fact. And uh, it just makes everybody's job in the press a lot harder. And I think that at the very uh, bedrock of a great democracy is a very strong press that is willing to ask questions and poke around in the dark corners where nobody else wants to go. And uh, with the ability of shining a spotlight on things uh, that need illumination. And when that goes away, I mean, I don't know what to, I don't know what comes next. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it continues to astound me that the industry is able to survive in any way. I mean, it's continuously underfunded. Its major sources of funding have largely been decimated. You know, there used to be a time when you'd pick up a major newspaper and you'd have however many pages in the back of classified ads. Well, that is ancient history now. That's Mm -hmm. gone. Um, You're now reverting to Google ads that are chasing 
fewer and fewer people and, and fewer and fewer pennies per click or whatever it is. At the same time, it has become the case that it is one of the few remotely lucrative ways of presenting information now is with as heavy a bias as humanly possible. So Fox News makes a ton of money. They're just destroying the country in the process. And apparently at some point, somebody decided that that was a small price to pay um, for, for that profit. In the long run, it is, it is a nightmare situation. Uh, and I don't know how you fix it. As a novelist who writes books that uh, tell stories about uh, hope and despair, empathy, and um, I don't know, and indifference maybe, when you uh, finish a book like What Strange Paradise, what reaction do you expect to get when the book comes out in a world that is so divided between hope and despair and empathy and indifference? What reaction do you expect to, to garner? I used to be a lot more certain of my answer to that question. Yeah. And, and the longer I spend in this field, the longer I spend in the world of fiction, storytelling, the less certain I am. I think for whatever it's worth, all I'm trying to do with both the novels, the short stories, all of my fiction, all of my stories is temporarily destroy the privilege of instantaneous forgetting. I, I want there to be a consequence to looking away. And that's effectively all you're doing is just telling somebody, please don't look away. Um, what the reader decides to do after that is entirely up to them. I just want for a minute for there to be, for them to be compelled not to look away because we happen to be very privileged to live in a part of the world where relative to the misery of almost everywhere else in the world, there's almost no consequence to looking away. And so that's really all I'm trying to do. Beyond that, People's own innate sense of the world kicks in and they read the book relative to that sense. And there is nothing I can do about that. And there's nothing I want to do about that. That is great. Do you sometimes though see presenting these stories, the story of Amir and Vanny, for instance, um, as like a little machine for empathy, you know, as you open up and tell a story about people and how they live. And we realize that people just want the same stuff. I mean, they want safety and they want food and they, no matter what their situation is, they want the, those who they care for, whether it's a little boy that washed up on, a, on an island or uh, a son or daughter or whoever, uh, to be safe. And stories like this should, you would hope, uh, create that sort of empathy and an empathetic outlook. And is that part of your process at all? Or is that, again, up to the reader to take away? I think the short answer is that it definitely is a part of the process. But I think one of the reasons that empathy gets such a bad rap in this part of the world, and certainly a lot of my colleagues, a lot of writers who are far more talented and intelligent than I am, despise that concept is because I think particularly in this part of the world, it's very much tied in with this kind of streak of individualism. Mm. And so there's this notion, not just of trying to, you know, when you think of empathy, the actual root word is a hundred years old. It comes from German, Eifelung, uh, which means I think to see into. Um, that in of itself does not include um, a 
a sort of auxiliary category of, and then I will fix everything. But in this very sort of individualistic society we live in, that is so often attached to the idea of empathy, that if I just feel your pain hard enough, I will fix it. Thoughts and prayers. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and I try to, as much as possible, surgically remove that element from it. I want you to feel into as much as humanly possible. I don't want you to feel like the savior. And in fact, a lot of what Strange Paradise is 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 about that savior complex and 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 sort of how misguided it can be. You're listening to my interview with Omar Alakhed, author of What Strange Paradise, now available wherever fine books are sold. And where does a, a story like this come from? The idea of uh, a, a young person washing up on a beach isn't something that's completely unfamiliar to us. Uh, Ilian Gonzalez, I think, uh, was the, probably the most famous example of that. That story ended differently than, than Amir's story does in the book. But wh- where, where did the pieces come from? There are two sort of moments that, that served as kind of genesis moments for this book. Um, the first was when I was, I was last in Egypt in 2012. I was still a full-time journalist at the time, and I was covering the aftermath of the Arab Spring. And I was, um, I was driving around with an old high school friend of mine who was complaining about the rent, the rents, you know, had gone up, which is as universal a complaint as as there is. And I asked him at one point, I said, you know, so what are the rents like in your apartment building? And he said, well, do you mean the locals price or the Syrians price? And I said, well, what the hell is the Syrians price? And he said, well, we've had an influx of people who fled to, from Syria and they don't have any choice. They don't have any bargaining power. So they, they, get, they get a price that's three times as much. And it quickly became apparent that this, this played out in almost every setting. Right. You'd go down to the fruit and vegetable vendor, same thing. Um, and this was at a time when every Arab leader was talking about our Syrian brothers and sisters, our Palestinian brothers and sisters, the same sort of nonsense um, that they spout, which has almost no bearing in reality. And so I was thinking about that. And then a while later, I was reading a story about a migrant ship that had gone under in the Mediterranean. And the details were about as grotesque as, as you'd imagine. But the thing that sort of astounded me was that this article and, and the story of what had happened had been the subject of such intense outrage for 24 hours. And within a day, everyone forgot and we moved on to whatever the next thing was. And I think those two elements of, of how readily we we always find a bedrock of a bedrock of exploitable human beings and how readily we are able to forget their misery i think factored into me deciding to write this particular book it is amazing to me whenever some great tragedy happens there there will be a, a wave on social media of people posting a certain image or uh, messages of support or something like that, which lasts for 24 or 48 hours or something like that. And then it's back to cat videos and, and whatever else until the next terrible thing happens. And I think in a lot of ways, our attention span has been eroded simply by the amount of information that is thrown our way all the time. 
I think it started with 24 hour news channels that had to fill, fill, fill time all the time. Then social media came along and you're just barraged. There's a barrage of information coming your way all the time. And it's dangerous in a lot of ways, I think, because it, it takes away, I think, some of that empathy. You may have immediate empathy in the moment, but posting a photo on social media does absolutely nothing to change the situation that you are apparently feeling empathetic about. And, uh, and then we move on to the next thing. And I, I don't think that it's a, a healthy way to move forward. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the, the reasons that that particular approach is tempting, besides being very easy, you know, it's easy for me to post something on Twitter, is also because as a society, we've largely untethered the decision-making apparatus from, from everyday human beings. Right. I mean, I know it's a cynical thing to say, but the vast majority of the time, if you don't have a billion dollars, you have very little say in any kind of institutional decision-making. And so I can sort of see then the appeal of saying, well, at least this is available to me. Right. At least I can do this. The other aspect of it is I think that, I think this idea of instantaneous forgetting, as much as I harp on about it, as much as it infuriates me, I think it is a natural self-defense mechanism. It's a way to just get through the day. You know, it, I, I honestly couldn't tell you, you know, two years today, what was the Trump scandal? I could, I could not tell you that for the life of me because part of my brain as a psychic defense mechanism has moved on. Um, so I don't, I, you know, as much as it infuriates me, I, can, I, can, I think I can see where it comes from. I, I honestly couldn't tell you, you know, two years today, what was the Trump scandal? I could, I could not tell you that for the life of me because part of my brain as a psychic defense mechanism has moved on. Um, so I don't, I, you know, as much as it infuriates me, I, can, I, can, I think I can see where it comes from. Well, I think that it also seems like, and I mean, I don't know if this is possible, I, maybe it is, that there's more news right now happening simultaneously than there has been in, in my lifetime. And I was a kid when Vietnam was happening and there were gas shortages and, and you know, all the, the stuff that was happening at that moment in the early 70s. And I seem to remember a maelstrom. There was always a dark cloud when the news came on. Uh, but it, it feels to me now like we're living at peak news. We're living at a, a, a peak historical time. Certainly, uh, you know, everything seems to be happening all at the same time, and none of it's particularly good. And I think, too, people by posting something, a photo or whatever, a slogan on Facebook, uh, makes them feel uh, supportive. I am, I'm putting myself out there and look what I've done. I have supported this and I've put my stamp of approval on it without doing my, anything about it. It's performative. It's making them feel better about the idea that they have just, you know, made the right call, but it doesn't mean anything. Ultimately, it's completely performative. And I'm not sure moving forward, that's the way to get anything done. No, and I'm not sure that for a lot of these folks, I can prescribe what a non-performative version of that would look like. Right. You know, I can say the usual, you know, call your, your elected official, um, sign this petition, do that. But again, it, it comes down to this notion that we've constructed a society where your, your ability to change things is very much dependent on a, on a single resource mm. that is very asymmetrically divided. Um, you know, I, I, it'll be a long time and many, many book sales before I can own a newspaper. Right. Uh, Jeff Bezos has one. He's, he's doing fine. You know, 
Um, so, so again, I, I see the appeal of, of looking around, seeing these huge structures that are inherently unjust, but are completely outside of your control and thinking, well, God damn it, at least I'll like this one post on Twitter and get something, you know, at yeah. least, at least I can do right by my conscience in this setting. Right. Um, does it accomplish much? I doubted very, very much, but, but it's, it's some manifestation of agency, no matter how small. You spent time on the front lines in Afghanistan in 2007. Um, I can only imagine uh, that that leaves a mark on you. And do you think that the work that you have done since then, uh, which tends to be uh, serious, it tends to be heavyweight, even though this book, the new book, um, has uh, was inspired by Peter Pan in some way, uh, but but this book is a, is a serious book. And do you think that that, that experience of being in Afghanistan and, and absorbing all that uh, changed the work that you would do or, or made you a more serious person? What, I'm not sure, really sure what the question is there, but I, I, I think that there must be a link between being in that world and then stepping out of it and then it affects the work that you do afterwards. I mean, it's a fascinating idea to think about because, so I went, to, I went to Afghanistan on two stints in 2007 and 2009. 2007 one, I'd been bugging the foreign editor at the Globe and Mail for months and months to let me go because I was in my early 20s. I had read far too much Hemingway and I had this incredible romantic idea of what a war correspondent is and I wanted to live out that little fantasy of mine. And I remember getting there and uh, we get to Kandahar Airfield and Kandahar Airfield at the time was like a small city. It was like mm -hmm. 25,000 people or something. Wow. And the way it's defended is that there's an inner wire and an outer wire. And the, by definition, if there's ever an attack, if there's ever a car bombing or something, it's gonna hit the outer wire. So what does NATO do? They put the Afghan soldiers on the outer wire. They put the NATO soldiers on the inner wire. So even in this context of we're all on the same side, there was a real hierarchy of whose life counted for more. Right. And that was what my perception of all of the swashbuckling war correspondent, the, the heroics of war, never took into account this kind of reality. And so what my time on these assignments did for me more than anything else was completely diminish the value of the individual in the context of not just war, but any kind of arena of systemic violence. I used to have a very young man's idea of how much the individual mattered in, in this context. And I came out the other side thinking that what really matters are the systems. And then if you're not changing the systems, it does not matter how heroic or brave or right-minded you are, that's all garbage. That was the fundamental shift in my thinking, and it continues to to this day. What a fascinating guy. That was Omar Alakad. His book, What Strange Paradise, is a bestseller, and it's available now wherever you buy fine books. Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, we'll be there on the double. Whenever there's a problem, Round Adventure Bay. Ryder and his team of pups will come and save the day. Marshall, Rubble, Chase, Rocky, Zuma, Sky, yeah! 
recognize that music. That's the theme song from Paw Patrol, which I'm sure if you have kids has been echoing through your house for years now. After almost a decade on the air, they're now making the leap to the big screen with a new film called Paw Patrol, the movie. The company that produces Paw Patrol is called Spin Master, and I'm pleased to welcome Spin Master President Jennifer Dodge to the show. She is the producer on the film and has been part of the Paw brand since the very beginning. I asked Jennifer, what is the appeal of Paw Patrol? Well, I think in one word, it's puppies. You know, really, that's the deep (laughs) connection to these characters is that they're puppies they are, for all intents and purposes, the, you know, the same age demo as our audience. They're young kids and they do really heroic and wonderful things and serve their community uh, and they're cute, adorable puppies. So what's not to love? And a lot of the voice actors uh, have returned. A lot of the Canadian voice actors have returned. But if you look on IMDb, man, oh man, this cast that you have assembled for this is quite something. But how did you convince Kim Kardashian to be in this movie? You know what, Richard? It was really easy because she does have young children and they're huge fans of Paw Patrol. And, you know, through the years, we've watched out and we've listened and kept an eye out. Um, for any celebrities who've mentioned or talked about their kids loving Paw Patrol. And um, Jimmy Kimmel in particular, you know, brings it up on the couch on his late night show whenever he has a kid, uh, a guest that has young children. So it really gave us um, a good list to start from of of actors and and talent that, you know, we knew um, might want to do the movie to make their kids happy. So Kim, along with the rest of the cast, you know, they did this one for their kids, for sure. That was Jennifer Dodge talking about Paw Patrol, the movie that's in theaters on August 20th. Big thanks to all my guests today, Jenna Malone, Omar Alakad, and Jennifer Dodge. My biggest thanks, of course, and as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Crowe. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe. We'll talk again soon.